0: Really am, uh, I am every time we come together because God always feeds us so richly, uh, no matter the vessel that comes before you. Um, we recently had a had breakfast with well, coffee <laughs> with Melissa on Friday morning, and uh, it's always just such a pleasure uh, to do that. Not only with her, but really, I mean, with any of you as we get a chance to just connect and just get a little bit more what's going on in life but uh there's such an amazing fragrance coming off of her life that if you haven't hung out with melissa before i encourage you to find find some time to do so um there's there's a depth uh to to the well which she has and it's fresh and it's anointed and uh With that, I know you're going to be blessed by this morning's word, so please welcome her as she comes to give the word.
1: It's like the nice way of saying you smell. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Uh, No, it's funny. I don't need this. It is funny. (laughs) Okay, so... I've been thinking about this a lot, and if you were here last week and you were here when I gave the offering, we're going to be working out of the same uh, area of Scripture, but we're going to go much more in depth. And the hardest part I have um, after writing a paper, a sermon, anything that I have to write or come up with, is giving it a title. I don't know why, because the paper should have an overarching theme, the sermon should have an overarching theme, it should be easily identifiable. But for some reason, sometimes I get lost in all of the little details that I've just spent so long working with, chewing on, coming up with, organizing, that I have to actually pause and think about what the overarching theme is. So when Catherine asked me this morning, and I'm like, oh man, because I knew she was going to ask me last night before I went to bed, and I'm like, I probably should start thinking of a title, but I'm like, oh man, I got to come up with something, and, and God dropped into my lap. Raising foundations. Okay, so the scripture that we're going to be working with—it's going to be a little scripture heavy. Okay, it's kind of this is going to kind of be like a Bible study slash sermon. All right, so the scriptures we're going to be working with is First Kings 18 and First Kings 19. All right, we're not going to read every single thing. I'm not going. I'm going to skip over it. So some of the things are kind of kind of be paraphrased, but there are a lot of uh, very important points. And there's a raising of a foundation here, which Elijah's doing, and we're going to talk about in a minute. And there's very specific seasons in a very short order in these two chapters of scripture that Elijah, the prophet, goes through that are applicable to any believer's life and walk. All right? So I have found myself in all of these areas, not specifically these areas, okay? I didn't go up against the prophets of Baal, but spiritual warfare, right, you'll find yourself or a reflection of you in all of these areas and how it applies and how we can raise the foundation and the standard so that we can build on what's gone before us so that we move from faith to faith and glory to glory. So let's see how this plays out with Elijah. So at this time in 1 Kings 18, Ahab is the king and Jezebel is the queen. And it says that Ahab was one of the wickedest kings in all of Israel. Alright? He's the worst of the worst. And Jezebel is his queen, and Elijah's the prophet at the time. And one of the reasons he's the worst of the worst is because he tears down the temples of the Lord, and he replaces them with temples to the prophets of, to uh, Baal and Asherah, on all the high places. And so we're going to, so Elijah steps into the picture and remember we're in the old covenant and in Deuteronomy it lists the law and the consequences to breaking the law along with the blessing that comes with following the law. Well, one of the consequences of breaking the law is that it will not rain. So Elijah becomes public enemy number one in the country because he goes to Ahab and he goes, you've reinstated worship to idols. You've desecrated the areas that are meant for the living God. And he goes, it will not rain in this land until it's remedied and it stops raining. And now you have three years later, three and a half years later, and Elijah pretty much had to disappear because he became a hunted man. So we're going to start 18 verse 3-ish. So there's been a famine in the land for about three years, and Abahab summons Obadiah. Now, Obadiah was in charge of the palace, and he was a devoted follower of the Lord. Ooh, so you have a wicked king with a faithful, God-loving, God-fearing, obedient servant. Kind of reminds you a little bit of Daniel, doesn't it? Serving the gods but this is his home turf. This is Israel, the nation that he's serving. So he serves king and he serves country. And Obadiah is placed in the midst of a kingship that is evil and wicked. And he, when Jezebel tries to kill all of the prophets, he hides them in the caves. And he feeds them for these, however long they were hidden. And he waters them in the midst of this famine. And he's the only one who knows about it inferred maybe somebody else is helping him that's a lot of people to feed but he's he's the one and his name even means the servant of God and Obadiah was placed intentionally in this position as salt and in Matthew 13 we're called to be the salt of the earth and it says what good does salt do if it loses its flavor can it become salty again or does it get thrown out and trampled upon Now, we look at Obadiah, some of us could look at Obadiah, um, and say, well, you're, you're in the king's court. You didn't say anything to Ahab. You didn't stand up and read him the law and give him the riot act and say, you are wicked, you are evil. Why are you doing this? Was he dishonoring God, or was he salt set to preserve? Because salt does more than just flavor. So let's think about salt for a little bit because sometimes I think we need a perspective shift when we're talking about things, especially symbolic things. Salt does flavor. I like salt. Salt is a binder when you're baking. It's a stabilizer when you're cooking. It's a function. You need it for your body to function. It is a necessary mineral for your heart to work properly and your body to function. Salt is a preservative. That's why all of your processed food has such a high content of salt because bacteria cannot live where there's high contents of salt. So it preserves. And this one I found interesting. Salt also slows yeast when you're baking bread. So as the bread dough rises and the yeast, which We know from scripture we just need a little bit of leaven to make the whole loaf rise. But as the yeast eats up all of the sugars, if there isn't salt to slow down that process, it actually makes the bread weak in structure, it makes it deflate, and it doesn't have any flavor. So the salt actually slows the process down so that when the process is complete, It's great. It's yummy. It's perfect. It's food, right, that you want to eat. So Obadiah is hidden here as salt. And all of a sudden, Elijah Elijah shows up to Obadiah. And he goes, I'm here. And he's like, what are you doing here? All of the kings and nations surrounding us had to swear an oath that they didn't know where you were, but you show up to me? Do you want me dead? Because that's a real threat that Obadiah is living under, the threat of death. Which is why I say he was placed there, he was salt, he's the preservative, and if he did stand up and you know read Ahab the riot act like just to make himself feel better, he would have been put to death too. There's nothing stopping Ahab from doing that. And the prophets of the Lord would have also been put to death. There was a bigger picture, a bigger plan that Obadiah was serving. So sometimes we have to look at people that we don't always agree with or we find them in situations and we're like, well, why aren't you doing this? Maybe you should say that. But maybe we don't operate under the same function or revelation that they have while they're holding that position. We actually have to submit those things to that person because they're called to be in a place that we might not understand or even agree with. And Elijah doesn't just poof, show up to Ahab. He first goes to the servant of the Lord, Obadiah. And he says, "Uh, go and tell your master I'm here. And Obadiah's a little nervous and he's like, oh no, no, I don't know about this because what if God calls you away and poof, you're gone? Talk about translation, right? Elijah does that a lot. Poof, he's here. Poof, he's there. Nobody knows. You see that a lot of 2 Kings 2 when he's with Elisha. And Elijah reassures him, I will present myself to Ahab this very day. You have nothing to fear. So now Ahab comes. Ahab comes and he's like, oh, look, it's the troublemaker of Israel. Like all the blame And all of my personal responsibility, I'm going to put on you because you are the one who made it stop raining. And Elijah goes, no, no, no. I made no trouble for Israel. That, my friend, was you. You made choices, and choices have consequences. Isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting that sometimes when we experience the consequences of our choices, when we know or have a feeling what the outcome will be anyways, We like to shift blame, and that's what Ahab's doing here. He's like, this is all your fault. My people are dying. My animals are dying. You're the troublemaker, and it's it's time for you. It's up for you. We tend to create narratives in our head to make us feel better about us so that we don't have to take responsibility for the situations around us that we've had a hand in creating. Everybody does it at some point in time. But I find it interesting that first he shifts all the blame to Elijah. He doesn't take any for himself. But I guess you're the wicked king, right? So what are you expected to do? And even here, we have to remember God's raising a foundation and he's raising a standard. So Elijah's calling out what Ahab had done, and he's going, I'm raising the old foundations, I'm raising the standard, and what we need to do is we need to resurrect the worship of God in Israel. We need to bring it back. I've come with a greater perspective, I've come with a greater answer, and there's a crescendo that's building. Already it's building just in this confrontation between the king and between Elijah. And he, Elijah says, Let's, let's do this. Let's make a deal. Let's have a showdown. Let, let's, let's have this fight. Let's fight it out. You bring all of Israel, and you bring your 400 prophets of Baal and your 450 prophets of Asherah, or maybe those numbers are mixed up, and he's like, and you bring them all up to the mountain, to the high place, and we're going to see who God is this day. Now, I actually want to pause here for a minute because I think this play here before we get into the throwdown on the mountain between Jezebel and Ahab is interesting. Because if you actually look up the name Jezebel, it means purity. And if you look up the name Ab- Ab- uh, Ahab, excuse me, I keep on calling him Abraham. If you look up the name Ahab, it means my father's brother. We would say uncle, but it actually means my father's brother. So you have a queen which is supposed to bring purification to a nation and you have a king that was originally intended to be a brother to a nation to represent the father in heaven but what is happening is they're living a perversion they're living out the wrong version so because they're living out what they weren't created for they're not able to experience the destiny they were called to do And here's the cool thing with names. This is kind of a little side note maybe, but names are so important. Names of people, names of city, names of businesses, names of places. They're important because there's power in a name. Bethany Hicks likes to say, a name is a treasure map to your identity and a road map to your destiny. So what these two, this king and queen of Israel, could have done was to bring relationship, restore relationship, familial relationship, my father's brother, and purity. But they rejected that heavenly identity over their life when they chose the wrong version to live out, when they lived out the perversion, right? So we're actually going to see Elijah restore familial relationship and purify the nation because he's picking up what they laid down which is an interesting principle because if he can walk in that principle, we can walk in that principle. Things get laid down usually because people have no idea that they have them. So if we don't reconcile that to that person and be like, hey, actually, you're called to bring purity. You're called to raise the standard. If we don't pull that gold out of people, it just kind of withers away. We get to do that. We get to hear heaven on behalf of others, and pull them up, raise their foundation, raise the standard in their life. But even if they don't pick it up, it's still there. So we can also apprehend it and then fulfill that call. I think that's pretty cool. So, where were we? Oh, yes, they summon all of the people, and Elijah stands in front of all of Israel and Ahab, and he goes... How much longer will you waver hobbling between two opinions? If God is God, follow him. And if Baal is God, then follow him. And the people were silent. Elijah's like, guys, make a decision. It's time. It's time to put away childish things. It's time for the rubber to meet the road. It's time to move further. It's time to move faster. It's time to move higher. And now you have to make a decision. I love the quote about the squirrels. The road of life is paved with flat squirrels that couldn't make a decision. They didn't go right, they didn't go left. Kind of reminds you of the Laodicean church, right? I'm not hot, I'm not cold, I'm lukewarm, so I'm going to be the vomit that comes out of God's mouth. Yikes, right? And God even says, I would rather that you were hot or cold. Love me or hate me, but pick a side. You cannot stand in the middle. So, they're up there, they're waiting, they get the, altar, the altars of Baal, so the prophets of Baal are going to go first, and Elijah goes, you go first, you choose a bull, prepare it the way you need to prepare it, call on the name of your God, but don't set fire to the wood, okay? Don't set fire to the wood. Your God has to take up his own sacrifice. And so They do. From morning till noon, they're standing in front of their altar and their sacrifice, and they're shouting the name of Baal, and they're starting to dance around. And And when they're dancing around, that doesn't work either. So then they start to, like, scream and cry and shout, and it even says they cut themselves. And they pour their blood upon the altar, because remember, Baal and Asherah require human sacrifice at some point, usually the sacrifice of children. So they're doing all of these crazy ge- crazy things. And Elijah kind of begins to tease them, which is hilarious a little bit. And he goes, maybe you need to shout a little louder. Maybe he's daydreaming. Maybe he's in the bathroom. It actually says relieving himself. Maybe he's on a trip. Maybe he's asleep and can't be bothered. Wake him up. But they can't. There's no response. And Elijah goes, Okay, my turn. So he brings the whole crowd, all of Israel, over to him. And first, he raises the foundation. He takes the pieces of the altar that were torn apart and he rebuilds and repairs the altar to the Lord. And he uses 12 stones, which represent the 12 tribes. And he digs a trench around it and he piles the wood on it and he cuts the bull up and he puts all the bull pieces onto the wood. And in doing this, in repairing the old, in raising the foundations, he's not just doing this for himself. He's not just doing it for God. He's honoring every generation that has gone on before him. He is standing on the oath and the covenant and the testimony and the experience of every man, woman, and child that has come to that altar to offer a sacrifice to the living God. That's powerful. Talk about power. He restored that in that moment. So he's got it all piled on there. And then he fills large jugs with water and he goes, Pour it on the offering. He does it once. And he goes, Do it again. He does it twice. And he goes, Third time's a charm. And they pour it on there the third time. And they said the water was overflowing. It overflowed into the trench. Everything was drenched. The sacrifice was under the water. Three times. That's significant. Numbers, especially in the Old Testament, are very significant. And what was Israel desperate for? Water. They were desperate for water. They needed the water and what did the water represent well you got three right father son holy spirit you have the trinity and what does god say and or jesus say or excuse me paul say in ephesians 5 jesus sanctifies and purifies the church his body by the washing of the water of his word what does jesus say to the woman at the well He's sitting there. She approaches. She's a Samaritan woman. She's unclean. He goes, give me a drink. Are you even speaking to me? How could you even talk to me? Not only are you a man, you're a Jew. How could you even approach me? Why would you ask me? There's a reconciliation taking place. He goes, give me a drink. And she does. And through conversation, through his word, she has a revelation that he really is The son of the living God he is who he says he is and he goes you give me a drink and of this water i will thirst again but i say to you anyone who drinks the water that i give will never be thirsty it's like a bubbling eternal wellspring and guess where it resides in the new covenant in us it bubbles up it bubbles forth it's always present Are we aware of it? Are we aware of what we have? Are we like Elijah and we pull on the testimony of generations that have gone before us, experiences and revelation and strategy that has gone before us and we pull it inside and we say, okay, God, let it bubble up in me. Let me be an answer to the nations. Let me raise the foundations. Let me arise to lead men and women and children to you. So, Elijah has sacrifice. He walks up to it. Short prayer, like 10-second prayer. Actually, I'll just read it. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, generational, prove today that you are the God of Israel and that I am your servant. Prove I have done all of this at your command. Lord, answer me. Answer me so these people will know that you, Lord, are God, and you have brought them back to yourself. And immediately, immediately, without wait, the fire of the Lord flashes down from heaven, burns up the bull, burns up the wood, burns up the stone, removes the dust, and licks up the water. I can't even imagine what that looked like. It licked the fire of God, licked up the water. Like, I get a lot of pictures in my head when I hear that imagery, but they're all kind of weird, guys. And it's like, I don't even know how you would describe that. Wouldn't that be a sight to behold? Licked up the water, and it was gone. And what was the people's response? They made their decision. They fell down on their face, and they began to worship God. And then Elijah seizes all the prophets of Baal. Actually, he has Israel, the nation, seize all the prophets of Baal, take them to Kishon Valley, and there they were killed. Now, it's interesting, Kishon Valley is also a place of historic victory for the nation of Israel. One of the bigger battles would be Deborah and Barak. That's where they fought and overthrew Sisera, right? So that's one of the bigger battles, but again, he's on foundational territory it's victory after victory after victory he's layering the victories of the generations and then elijah has to go and pray for rain so he goes ahab because all of israel went down to take care of the prophets ahab go get something to eat and drink because i hear a mighty rainstorm coming now in the natural elijah probably didn't hear anything there was no wind there hasn't been rain in three and a half years So he either heard the sound of the rains in the heaven or he was making a declaration by faith. I think either are possible, right? It was a supernatural declaration or hearing. He was calling it in. And I think it's interesting that Elijah's work is not done. But Ahab gets to go rest and eat. He gets the victory that he didn't fight for, Actually, he did the opposite of that, right? But he gets to enter in the rest. That's important. To be able to look at someone, and in this case, Ahab, a wicked, idol-worshipping, murderous king, and go, you've repented, and you're God's now, and you get to enter into his rest that's a hard thing to do, especially if it's someone who's been hunting you, someone who hurt your people, someone who was killing your fellow prophets, someone who I'm sure was slanderous, you know, name it, right, against him personally. And he goes, you get to go in and you get to enter rest. And I'm going to go because I hear the sound of the rain coming. Guys, we like the Old Testament, hellstone, fire, and brimstone, but I'm pretty sure that's a lower standard. Actually, I know it's a lower standard. That's easier than saying, I will love my enemies, and I will let them enter into the rest of the Lord, and I will lift them up. That's a higher standard. That's raising the foundations. That's hard to do outside of christ even in christ i have a hard time doing it sometimes so anyways ahab goes and he eats and he drinks elijah with a servant he goes and he climbs the mountain and he gets down on his hands and his knees and his face is between his knees it says and he starts crying out to god for the rain and he sends his servants and he says go look to the sea and tell me what you see and the servant goes and he comes back nothing And he does this seven times and it's nothing. Well, six times. He does it six more times and it's nothing. Now, imagine you're Elijah at that moment. If I were Elijah, my first thought, (laughs) I'm still praying on behalf of Israel, but my first thought would be, man, my knees are killing me, right? The dirt is in my face. I think I inhaled a little pebble up my nose. I'm not sure I'm kind of hungry, I didn't get any water, I didn't get any food, hang on, I got to focus. And then it's the first time, second time, third time, fourth time, fifth time, sixth time. By that sixth time, remember, he is a man, he is a person, just like David. David had to encourage himself in the Lord. I bet by the sixth time he was like, God, this was your word, this was your promise, this is what scripture says. This was the experience of Abraham. This was the experience of Moses. He's pulling all the strings of that tapestry. I would be, because you got to hang in there, right? Now the seventh time, the servant comes back and he goes, isn't it interesting? Actually, I'm going to hop back. Isn't it interesting the the order that that took place. First, I'm physically uncomfortable. Then I'm kind of mentally uncomfortable. Then I'm kind of like distraught and doubting. It kind of happens like that in my prayer when I'm pushing in and I can't give up and it's been the sixth time. There's a progression. That's interesting. Anyway, the seventh time, the servant comes back and he goes, Well, I see a little cloud about the size of a man's hand. Well, that's something, but it's still nothing all at the same time. Is it what Elijah was looking for? No. But was it there before? Also no. So it's something, but it's nothing. But Elijah recognizes it, and he goes... This is that. It's starting right now. This is the fulfillment of the promise that God gave. He's bringing the rain, and he's so sure, and he's so full of faith in that moment that he goes to the servant, go tell Ahab. He has to leave now because if he doesn't leave now, the rain that is coming is going to stop him. He's got to make it back to Jezreel. So the servant goes off, and Ahab leaves, but Elijah stays and he keeps pressing in he keeps preparing he keeps praying he keeps strategizing on behalf of Israel he's already sent off the king but he keeps going Elijah keeps going it's something but it's nothing but it's the start and he's able to see that but I'm also guessing at that moment his prayer changed. And it went from, you know, the physical discomfort, mental discomfort, potential distress to thanksgiving. Because he sees it. Even though it's not here yet, he sees it and he knows it's coming. And when we start giving thanks when we don't see it, And when we start giving thanks, when we see the start of it, what happens with small beginnings? They explode into great expressions of God when we respond in faith and gratitude. When we compare our faith with thankfulness, there is this explosion that happens. An increase and greatness happen when we steward that, the faith with the gratitude. Think about the loaves and the fishes when Jesus is going to feed the multitude. He had a couple fish and a couple loaves. I don't remember the numbers. But it wasn't until he gave thanks and he broke it that it multiplied. It was in the faith, the gratitude, and the breaking that this explosion of food, this supernatural provision of food happened. And it was in the thanks and the gratitude and the pursuit that brought the rain. Now, it's interesting, he's still there. Elijah, or Ahab's gone, Elijah's still there. And it says he tucks his cloak into his belt and he runs. And he runs ahead of Ahab's chariot all the way, getting to Jezreel first. It's interesting because your means of provision as a member of the body of Christ will not always look like the means of the provision for the world. Ahab left with horses and chariots. Elijah ran with supernatural speed. He prepared himself, and he went. And he got there first. And that is a sign and a wonder. God does not forget his servants, but as a servant, I want to be aware of my options. do I know that I can run with supernatural speed? Do I know that my provision is going to look different than Fred's provision, than Jen's provision, than Josh's provision? Do I know that all of our provision in this room will probably look very different than any provision that the world has to offer us? When they had to pay taxes, Jesus and his disciples... They go fishing, right? Makes sense. Catch some fish, sell them, make your money. Nope, that's not what happened. They got one fish, I think. And <laughs> I didn't read the story recently, but it just reminded me of it. They got one fish, and in that fish's mouth were the, was the money for the tax man. That is provision. Did it show up the way they were expecting? Nope. Not at all. All right, so Ahab gets home to his wife, which it appears she was like the only one not there. And he tells her everything that Elijah did about the prophets, about the fight, about the rain, about, you know, all of it. And Jezebel gets angry. And she writes this message to Elijah, and she says, may the gods strike me and even kill me if by this time tomorrow I have not killed you just as you killed them. Now Elijah Was afraid and he fled for his life and he went to Beersheba, a town in Judah. Let's look at Beersheba for a moment. So Elijah just purified the nation with fire and water and rain, lots of water, right? He proved that God is God and the nation turned back and all of these things and all of, and he got rid of all the prophets of Baal. And now he's terrified. But where does he go? He goes to this town, Beersheba. Now in Beersheba, there's a well called Sheba. And I might be pronouncing it wrong, but it's basically the end. And this well is also a historical place because Elijah's going to go down a little memory lane trip, a little generational heritage trip because Beersheba is one of the wells, it actually means the well of oath, that Abraham dug. And Abraham dug it when he made a peace treaty with a king. This is in your Genesis 20s, okay? So Abraham makes this treaty and can stay in the land, and this is how he celebrates, by digging a well, and it is the well of covenant, the well of oath. And then Isaac later, much later, the well gets covered over, Isaac gets kicked out of the land that he's staying in, and he has to find a land, and he goes and he digs like a bunch of wells, and finally... And he has to dig a bunch of wells because the Philistines are so jealous because he's reaping crops that haven't been sown. And his animals are flourishing despite the lack of resources because people keep kicking him out of the land and he has no water, he has no well. But finally, Abimelech comes back to him and he goes, I see that you're flourishing. I see that God is with you. Let's make a covenant and you can stay in this land. And it's at the well Beersheba, the well that Abraham dug the well where Abraham made a covenant where he could stay in the land. So we have the well of Abraham, the well of Isaac, and it's also the well of Jacob because this is the well that Jacob is leaving when he has his dream about the stairway to heaven and he goes, God is here. This is a generational spot. You want to know something cool? If you go to Israel, you can visit the well of Abraham, which is the well of Beersheba, today, Today. You know what's also cool? It also means the well of seven. And we already talked about seven being completion. It was seven times before the work of the rain was fulfilled. Seven. So Elijah gets there and he's exhausted. What has the man just been through? You know, the throwdown with the prophets of Baal. He pressed in for the outpouring of rain. He runs with supernatural speed all the way back to Jezreel. He's threatened. His very life is threatened. And he lays down under a tree, and he's like, I'm done. I'm done. I've had enough. I'm no better than my ancestors who have already died before me. And he falls asleep, and an angel touches him to wake him up. An angel touched him, and beside his head was bread and water, and he said, eat this. So he ate it, and he goes back to sleep. And an angel again wakes him up, and he goes, no, you have to eat enough to sustain you for this journey. Get up and eat this. And the food that he was given, it says this in, uh, we're in 1 we're in Kings 19 now, And we're in verse 8. And the food that was given to him gave him enough strength to travel 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Sinai. So, guys, this wasn't just any regular bread and water. Do you know of a bread that will give you strength for a 40 day journey? Do you know of water that will last you potentially for a 40 day journey? You could, I guess you wouldn't. I was gonna say you could make a killing on it, but I guess you wouldn't because it would like sustain you for so long, like you would make no money at all, right? This was supernatural food. This was supernatural sustenance that he was given to eat for 40 days. Kind of like the living water that we just talked about, the wellspring of life eternally bubbling and flowing that Jesus offers. And kind of like the bread of life, a name of Jesus. So like, what if he had communion before he takes off for Mount Sinai? And let's talk about another historic place, another foundational place. Because Mount Sinai, also known as Mount Horeb, uh, was the mountain that Moses went on for the Ten Commandments. It's the mountain that he meets God, Moses meets God. It's also the mountain that God wanted to show up to all of Israel to draw them close, to speak to them personally. And when all of Israel showed up, The mountain shook, and there was smoke, and there was lightning, and there was thunder, and there was earthquakes, and it was scary. And Israel goes, Nope, we believe you chose Moses. We choose Moses too. Moses is going to be our intermediary. Let's not do this again. That's the same mountain. Remember that as we keep reading here a little bit, because I'm going to read this next section, and then we'll talk about it. All right, so he's at Mount Sinai. He's in a cave where he spent the night. And the Lord said to him, Elijah, what are you doing here? Oh, God asks a question. God knows the answer to all questions that he asks. But hey, Elijah, what are you doing here? You know what's really funny about this question, too? Apparently we're not going to read it, and I'm just going to keep talking. We are going to read it, though. I'm just kidding. You know what's funny about this question God sends an angel to wake him up and feed him. God sends an angel to wake him up and give him supernatural food that will last him this entire journey. And the angel actually leads him to Mount Sinai, and and God's like, why are you here? What's going on? Right? And Elijah replies, I've zealously served the Lord, the God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you and torn down your altars and killed your prophets, and I am the only one left, and they're trying to kill me too. God's like, okay, go out and stand before me on the mountain. That's what the Lord told him. And Elijah stood up, and the Lord passed by, and a mighty windstorm hit the mountain. Such a terrible blast, the rocks were torn loose, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire. The Lord was not in the fire, and after the fire, there was the sound of of a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard the gentle whisper, he wrapped his face in his cloak and he went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. When Israel was with Moses and they went to meet God at Mount Sinai, God showed up in the loud, scary, noisy, thunderous things which scared them. And Moses even said, This is a test. Don't back down. And they did, anyways, out of fear. Moses is here, and God is shifting how he's speaking right now because he didn't show up in the wind and the fire and the earthquake. He showed up in the gentle whisper. And Elijah had to undergo the test where was God? In the thunder? In the fire? No, in the whisper. And at the sound of the whisper, he left the cave, probably immediately. I think it's Oswald Chambers. At the sound of the slightest whisper from my Lord, I run. Right? I want to do that. And again, God asks him, What are you doing here? And he replies, the exact same reply, I've zealously served the Lord God Almighty, and the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you and torn down your altars and killed your prophets. I am the only one left, and they're trying to kill me too. So here's an interesting thing about a cave. A cave season, because we all find ourselves in cave seasons, hidden away. I think it's a beautiful thing that God used a gentle whisper to pull him close. He wasn't scared of God. He didn't flinch at the thunder and the lightning and the fire. He knew he was God's. He knew what he just walked through, how God sustained him in the famine, how God brought him through the prophets with, at Baal and that whole thing, and how how he ended up here. He, he knows his story and he knows the story's past. He's not stupid. Maybe he's exhausted. Maybe it's a momentary lull where Elijah has to stop doing all the big things to get in the presence of the living God, to realign his life, to quiet down, recalibrate, reevaluate, let the dead things go. Maybe prune the living ones because when you prune it, it bears more fruit so that he can enter into a new thing. Because here's the cool thing about caves. Even though they feel like death and they feel like you're hidden and it feels like you'll never come out again and it feels long and drawn out, here's the cool thing about a cave. They're transformational. The way Elijah goes in, The stories that he just did, the feats of his past, those are great. But this cave is transformational. And when Elijah comes out, he's going to be completely different than the man he walked in. He gets to raise his own foundation. He gets to step up higher. I've done all of these things, and that's great, but I'm not going to live here. I'm going to go to the next thing. I'm going to go to the new thing. I'm in this quiet place, I'm leaning into God, I'm resting with him, I'm listening to the gentle whisper so that I can move the mountains. And every person in your life, you will have your mountaintop seasons and your valley seasons, and it will be sunny and flowers and unicorns, and it will be rainy, downpours, and you think it'll never end. God's called the potter and we're called the clay, but have you ever sculpted anything before? Because the potter actually has to take the clay and mold it and squish it and apply pressure and and there's tools involved. It's a little bit like surgery, right? And some seasons require more pressure than others so that we come out shaped right and we don't have like a wonky bit like hanging off the side. (laughs) It's true. So Elijah knows who he is. But now he has to face himself with God in the cave. It's kind of like sitting on the therapist's couch. Where am I going next? What do I see? Where is the strategy for the next season? Do I stay close? Because sometimes we run so much. Sometimes we run so much at supernatural speeds, we actually have to stop. Physically, mentally, and emotionally, we have to stop. And it's okay to stop. Stopping does not mean you're failing. It does not mean you are failing. I feel like a failure sometimes when I stop and I know I have things to do. And I'm like, nope, I can't sit down. I have this and this and this and somebody needs that. And it's like, no, you're never going to be able to do all of these things unless you can sit for a moment. And usually it's in the silence where it's not where we're facing everybody else and it's not where we're facing the big things of God, the thundering things, the fast things, the powerful things. It's where we intimately sit with God and we face ourselves and we deal with our house, our person. It's fun to chase the thunder. It's fun to do the big, powerful things. But sometimes there comes a time where the thunder is still good, but you're not supposed to be in the thunder anymore. You're supposed to be sitting in the cave listening for the strategy for the next season. The fires are fun to chase. They look cool, pretty colors, they're bright, they're powerful. Yeah, God can show up in the fire, but is he right now? Maybe for you he is but maybe for me, no. So can I sit? And it's important to keep the season in perspective because when you enter the cave, you leave transform. And the cave gives you things and changes you in a way a fight doesn't. And it changes you in the way an assignment on the earth cannot. And it changes you in a way that it brings you out next level. We've liked those words lately, right? So it brings you out on a whole other level. It brings you out next level. It's like Jacob wrestling with God. It brings you out with a new identity, a new name, a new purpose. So God's going to take Elijah out of this cave, and he's going to go from caves to kings, and he's going to go from fights to fatherhood. And I say that kind of jokingly because I'm referring to the fight that we just read about on Mount uh, Carmel. However, fatherhood all by itself is a fight. A harder fight, maybe, than fighting the prophets of Baal and being like, okay, God, show up, take care of this, boom, we're done. Because fatherhood is a relational fight. It's a relational journey, and you're there from the beginning, and you're all the way there to the end, and it's not just about you. Actually, it's really not about you, it's about them. And it's about the process of lifting them up and raising them up and they still get to make all of their own choices, and you're just kind of like the ear in the guidance. That's a hard place to be. <laughs> you're like, you're doing it wrong. Well, it's their choice to make, even if they do it wrong. I don't know. I kind of think that's a harder fight. But that's where Elijah's going. He's going from caves to kings and fights to fatherhood, because it's not about how you used to function... It's not about how Elijah used to function. The cave is not about how you used to function. It's not about what people expect of you and how people expect you to function. It's about where you're going, where the whisper is drawing you. So Elijah gets it out the second time. This is my problem. And God says, okay, you're going to go back the same way you came in. And then you're going to travel to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive there, you're going to anoint Haziel, the king of Aram. And you're going to anoint Jehu, the son of... Let's just skip some of these names. You're going to anoint Haziel, and he's going to be king. And then you're going to anoint Jehu, and he's going to be king of Israel. And then you're going to anoint Elijah. And he's going to replace you as my prophet. Ooh, sounds a little scary there, doesn't it? And I've actually heard this message preached... To where that was Elijah's punishment for being in the cave, but it's not a punishment. It took me a long time to realize we all will be replaced. And the work that God has called in my life, if when I die, the work dies, then what was it for? The work God has placed in my heart and in my life and the vision he has given me has to be bigger than me. It has to outlive me. It has to grow past me. He's not being replaced. He's picking up a son. And I'm going to prove that to you in a minute. But he's picking up a son. He's picking up a successor because he's not going to live forever. Just like all of us. At some point, we get to enter into eternity. But the work of the kingdom lives on the earth; it's got to keep going. And so he does. He goes. Elijah goes down, and he finds Elisha, and Elisha is plowing the field, and he's got twelve teams of oxen. So fun numbers, right? I like numbers. Twelve is represents the government of God. What's the government of God? The apostles, the prophets, the pastors, the teachers, and the evangelists. But it's twelve teams. So it's actually 24, and it's a prophetic picture of what Elisha is actually going to get to walk in because he's going to ask for a double portion of what Elijah gives him. And we'll look at that in a minute, too. And Elijah goes over him and he throws his cloak around his shoulders and he walks away. And Elisha goes up to him and he goes, First, let me go and kiss my father and mother goodbye, and I will go with you. And Elijah replies, Go back, but think about what I've done to you. And Elisha returns and he slaughters his oxen, and he uses the wood from the plow to build a fire and roast the oxen, and he passes the meat out to the townspeople, and he leaves. There's no turning back. Elisha is all in. He's all in. And here's the cool thing about Elisha. Language shifts after this moment. There's going to be a language shift. It's not until 2 Kings where we see Elijah dies. And before Elijah dies, Elisha goes, give me a double portion. And and he goes, that's such a hard thing to do. In order for you to get a double portion, you have to see me as I'm going up. And he goes, okay. And what he means is when you can see the way I see or what I see, then you can have what I have because here's the potential double portion. He gets the vision of Elijah, but he is Elisha. He is his own person. He is unique. He has a calling. He has a vision, but he can see the way Elijah sees. He can experience things the way he does, but also the way his father does. So he gets to step into a generational inheritance and he gets double and he does when Elijah dies and goes up Elisha yells my father my father the chariots of Israel and the horsemen thereof he does not yell my prophet my prophet he does not yell my teacher my teacher he does not yell my master my master he yells my father and the mantle falls from heaven, and he gets Elijah's mantle, and he walks in a double portion. He's a whole other scripture study, it is amazing. Elijah did eight miracles, he does 16, and they grow in theme, and they grow in content, and they grow in lesson, because he's building upon generational foundations. He's raising the foundations. And there's a language shift, a really important language shift, When Samuel was the prophet of Israel, the company of prophets, or the community of prophets, was called the company of prophets or the school of prophets. But under Elijah and Elisha, they are now referred to as the sons of prophets. And language is important. We don't think necessarily that that's a huge distinction, but the language we use is really important because there's a philosopher who says this, and I don't remember their name, but the limits of my language are the limits of my world. So my ability to communicate with the right words opens up entire worlds, it opens up entire realms, it opens up realms of possibility. So the language shift is important because we're stepping into a time where it's the sons and the daughters of the prophets. And in order to have the sons and the daughters, what do you need? You have to have the mothers and the fathers. And that's who Elijah was, and Elisha, because it continued. He was a father, and he rose. Mothers, do you want a direct example? Let's look at Deborah. Barak comes to Deborah, and she goes... Why didn't you go out and get Cicero? Why didn't you take down the army? God's with you. And he goes, oh, I'm not going. I'm only going to go if you go. And she goes, okay, I'll go with you. And she's like, but your consequences, this victory is going to belong to a woman, which it does, JL. And she goes out, and they are victorious. God was with them. They wiped out Cicero and the army, and eventually Israel goes stronger and stronger. But then it says in Judges 5, that Israel, or I, Deborah, arose as the mother of Israel. And that was when Israel grew in strength and might and power. She was a judge of Israel, she was a prophetess of Israel. She sat under the palm tree and judged Israel and gave out prophecies. But it wasn't when she rose as the judge, it wasn't when she rose as the prophetess, it was when she arose as a mother. And the language we use is important. And girls, women, you're the mother. And men, you're the father. And we have to work together. And if the language of mother and father stirs something in you, if you're like, no, 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 I don't really want to be the mother and the father, let's go back to the community of prophets, the community of believers, the community of faith, Well, there's probably something in there that you have to take to that still, small voice and go, why? Because mother and father is not a personality type. It's not a temperament. It's a you. And you are a unique expression on this earth of what it means to be a mother and to be a father. Do not put yourself in the box. We talked about breaking our perspective over salt earlier. Now we need to think about What father and motherhood looks like and how it shows up. Because that's what God is pouring out on the earth. He is rising up, raising up mothers and fathers to pull on the generational foundations and lift His people higher. And you do not have to be a biological parent for this to apply, you do not have to be any specific age. There is something you have to give inside each and every one of you. The teens, the 20s, the 30s, the 80s, I don't care. There's something that shows up in you that can mother and father. And what's great is, and what's important is, we need to do it together. So I'm going to end here with this, and I'm going to pray. Father, thank you for the example of Elijah throughout your word. And thank you that you show up in power on our behalf, that you show up and you fight our battles and you give us supernatural provision and you come alongside us and, and the provision you pour out Let it be something we see and recognize and grab a hold of. Don't let it pass us by because we don't recognize it. Lord, awaken our senses to recognize what you're doing in our lives. Awaken our senses to hear that still small voice, to know what to lay down, what to pick up, where we're going, if we need to sit, if we need to run, or if we need to fight. But most of all, Lord, I pray that you would bring relationships into our life that mother and father us. And I pray that you bring relationships into our life to where we can be a mother and father of the kingdom of God so that we can raise the foundations and build generational inheritance so that our kids, our discipled people, can go farther than we have gone. And it's just an exponential effect. Thank you that you're shifting the language. Thank you that you're shifting the thought processes. And Lord, let us grow in your kingdom perspective of what you're pouring out on the earth. In Jesus' name, amen.